Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. We're here with Dr. Michael Silverstein, and today we're going to be talking about menopause. Mike, tell us, what are the common things that women ask you about when they're either in the middle of menopause or anticipating menopause? Well, it's often something I'm going to bring up. Over the past 25 years, many of my patients have segued into menopause. People that I was delivering in their 30s and 40s, as far back as 15 years ago, it became an issue. And now 25 years later, a significant majority of the patients I delivered 20 and 25 years ago are facing menopause. There's no real one way people go through the changes. The average age is about 52. I tell them that about 10% of patients turn 52 and the period shuts off like a water faucet and they don't get one symptom. That's a very small percentage. Another very small percentage in their early to mid 40s will begin to develop some of the four symptoms of the menopause. And those symptoms include uh, hot flashes, that tends to be the most disabling. Insomnia, which many patients with kids come into the changes with. Vaginal dryness or difficulty generating moisture with sexual stimulation. And mood swings. And whenever I mention mood swings, patients said, I've had that my entire life. So that's kind of hard to, to nail. But hot flashes and the vaginal dryness, if you don't bring it up and, and present it to your patient, they're often not going to present that as a complaint. And so it's important to get things onto the table. And I tell them the other majority that don't do the shut off like a water faucet and have disabling symptoms in their early 40s will start with skipping a period, maybe bleeding a little bit lighter, maybe getting an occasional symptom. While they're still having their periods, if that's making them uncomfortable, we can often give them a low-dose birth control pill to help get them through till they get to an age where they'll perhaps be ready to go through menopause. All the symptoms of menopause are easy to treat without hormones, with the exception of the hot flashes. There have been looked at a litany of different medications and treatments and therapies for the hot flashes. The other three are very manageable and very easy to deal with. What exactly is going on with menopause? Like, Why do these changes happen physiologically? What's a way that you explain this to people? So physiologically, it's simply your ovaries have stopped growing uh, Follicles have stopped generating eggs. Women, uh, when they themselves were in their mom's bellies, had uh, millions of eggs. And when they're born, they have hundreds of thousands of eggs. And when they start their periods uh, in their teens, they have several hundred thousand eggs. They'll ovulate with the absence of stimulation one every month. And so at 52 or 53, they don't run out of eggs. So whether you've ovulated a lot, had children, didn't have children, started your periods at 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, or 16, menopause is going to be at a very similar time. And the eggs are simply atrophy. They no longer generate uh, the follicles that will generate an egg. And so it's just a physiologic process. And then what happens because of that? They have decreased hormones or changes in hormones? The most dramatic is estrogen. Estrogen is, is the culprit absence of estrogen for many of those symptoms, as well as people have looked at increasing risk of heart disease, decreasing bone density. Bone density is a huge issue uh, with menopause. 
I tell patients that their bones are like a brick wall. Throughout a woman's life, the brick wall is completely full with bricks in the absence of underlying diseases at age 35. From 35 to menopause, every 10th brick might be removed. Every 12th brick might be removed. No change in the force it could sustain in terms of accidents and injuries with women who have underlying medical conditions using certain medications a greater number of bricks might be removed. With menopause, more bricks are removed. There is a genetic link. If your mom or older sisters lost height, that represents their vertebrae collapsing. So if more than every 10th or 12th brick, if every fourth or fifth brick was removed, the brick wall would not collapse, but it would not sustain a blow as well. That's why you hear about older people fracturing their hips. It's because the density is smaller. The, they didn't lose any altitude. Their vertebrae are still intact. But if they take a bad step, the hip can't tolerate. The brick wall isn't as strong. And this is mostly due to decreases in estrogen that's floating around. Absolutely. There are two types of cells in a woman's life. One that builds up bone, one that breaks down bone. And estrogen is associated with strengthening the one that builds up bone and weakening the one that takes away bone. In the absence of estrogen, the ones that weaken the bone dominate. And again, related to genetics, to family history, to medications, underlying diseases. With some women, it's more rapid. And some women, it's a little more lethargic. There's a phase of bone density that's demonstrated by DEXA, dual x-ray absorbiometry that measures essentially how many bricks are missing from your brick wall. There is a normal range, there is a bone loss but not risk of bone fracture range, and then there's a bone loss risk of fracture range. If you can find somebody in the bone loss but not yet risk of fracture, there is a series of treatments, whether it's calcium supplementation and weight-bearing exercise, which we encourage all of our women to do, at all ages, or if it's continuing to decrease, there are medications that can arrest the bone loss, but you cannot regenerate bone. You can arrest the loss, you can stop the loss, but you can't build back bone. So when you see somebody who's lost three or four inches of height and just had a wrist fracture from a, a, a fairly gentle fall, you certainly can treat her, but having found that five or 10 years earlier and preventing her to get to the fragile stage would have been better therapy. And it seems to me that if the culprit is decreasing estrogen, and that's true in terms of bone loss, it's true in terms of the hot flashes, it's true in terms of the vaginal dryness, the irregular bleeding, potentially the increased risk of heart disease, most people think, well, all right, let's just take more estrogen as we get into our 40s and 50s, and that's obviously been looked at. And so what's the problem with that, with just taking estrogen to make up for what's being lost? There's always been an association with a mild 10% increased risk of breast cancer with taking estrogen. For many years, it was thought that the benefit of the estrogen in terms of reducing bone density issues, cardiac issues, an association with reducing Alzheimer's, with skin texture, with hair loss, there were many things touted to be helpful with taking estrogen replacement therapy. There is definitely a link with taking unopposed estrogen with building up the lining of the uterus to a dangerous amount. And so adding progesterone to the estrogen was thought to weaken the, uh, the risks to the, to the uterus. 
but it failed to weaken the risk of association with breast cancer. Subsequent to those studies, less support for hormone replacement therapy for all those other issues, aside from the four main symptoms, were found in terms of Alzheimer's, in terms of hair loss, in terms of skin texture, and things like that. So in select patients, especially the ones that have disabling hot flashes, hormone replacement therapy still plays a huge role. They get regular mammograms. Uh, they are well cared for. And again, the other symptoms, you can use estrogen, abs, or creams in the vagina can definitely restore normal vaginal function without systemic absorption and without thought to have any of the systemic risks of taking estrogen replacement therapy. Insomnia and mood swings can be treated with non-hormonal agents. And so there's absolutely positively a conversation that has to take place with women of all ages uh, talking about their health, their health moving forward, and different options they have for management. Right. And I think that's something that a lot of women don't realize and that menopause obviously is common. All women go through it at some point in their life. And the symptoms, as you said, they vary from mild to significant. And the idea is that there is this option to take hormones, which will likely help most, if not all, of their symptoms. Uh, but the problem is that there's risk to that as well. And so while it seems like a wonderful thing, there's also risk. And so the decision has to be made, is it worth the risk or is it not worth the risk? And because of that, so many other treatments have been developed to target each of the symptoms that don't involve giving estrogen. So there's medications for bone loss, there's medications for hot flashes, there's medications you know, for, for vaginal dryness. Again, although you said estrogen can be used vaginally without the same risks, but that's part of why menopause is complex for women and for people who take care of women to try to figure out what is the right balance for each person. There is no magic pill that works for everybody. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And clearly avoiding hormone replacement if it's not indicated, is a perfectly acceptable thing to do. 25 years ago, it was thought that as women entered menopause, everybody should get hormone replacement therapy because it's going to dramatically reduce coronary artery disease and, and dramatically prolong lives. And all the, the demographic examples they gave, if you treated 1,000 women with hormone replacement therapy, 10 or 20 more would develop breast cancer, but 200 would live longer because it would reduce coronary artery disease. And in the Women's Health Initiative, right around 2000, benefits for the coronary artery disease were more modest. They confirmed the increased risk of breast cancer, but the coronary artery disease data weren't as reassuring. It's a conversation you have with the patients. We have professionals who are presenting at board meetings and they break into a hot sweat and they soak through their clothes. That's unacceptable for them. On the other hand, if you have somebody that gets an occasional hot flash and they have to towel off and, and then a couple of weeks later they get another hot flash, and they're perfectly comfortable dealing with that on an irregular basis. So it's a conversation and virtually with every patient, there is a solution that's manageable. Right. The Women's Health Initiative that you refer to as a massive study uh, done in the U.S. to look at giving women hormones versus not giving them hormones around the time of menopause. And it was such a big undertaking, and they're still working off that data 20-plus years later. And that's another reason this is very complicated, because to get answers to these questions about what really is the best option for most women in terms of risk, you need very large studies that follow women for a very long time, because you're talking about outcomes that could be 30 years later, right? If you give someone estrogen now, and like you said, maybe there's a slight increased risk in breast cancer, which is bad, 
but maybe 30 years from now, they have a much lower risk of breaking their hip. And it's hard to also, A, to know what those numbers are, and B, how do you weigh how many breast cancers versus broken hips? What is the right balance? And that is one of the other reasons this is all debated. It's not just we don't know the numbers, but even if you know the numbers, you have to put a value to each of these things, and that's very complicated. For some people, breaking their hip is a very big annoyance, and for other people, it can lead to horrible disability and even death. And so it's hard to know the answer to these questions. Especially in later years, hip fracture is very closely associated with dying shortly afterwards from the associated complications. And clearly, diagnosing early bone loss, as I described before, and trying to intervene in a non-hormonal manner is very helpful. And so I don't think we avoid hormones. I think we try to find the safest ideal treatment. And the conclusion of the Women's Health Initiative was supportive of hormone replacement therapy in the lowest dose for the shortest duration needed. And so there are a whole litany of patients that are getting treated with hormone replacement therapy. After six months or a year, we either can change their dosage, we can ask them to take a pill every other day. If they don't develop symptoms, to take one every third day. And if they still don't develop symptoms, to walk away from it. Because if it's every third day, they're not really needing the, the, it's just a segue. It's just a transition into menopause. So there are very, very few patients that take hormone replacement therapy for their whole life. There are some that do. But again, as the Women's Health Initiative stated, the lowest dose for the shortest time necessary. If somebody gets symptoms every other day or every third day, they go back to every day. And it's on a case-by-case basis, and it's an ongoing conversation with the gynecologist. I want to stress that last point that you made, which is this is something that evolves over time for each person as her circumstances change, uh, whether it's her other health risks or how each treatment affects her symptoms, whether it works, whether it doesn't work, also as new data emerges. And this isn't something you can just look up online and find an answer and say, hey, I have this symptom, I should take this medication. It really involves a lot of thought and a lot of conversation, and it helps to have a doctor who knows you and knows you well. And that's very important to have ongoing relationship with the person who is either giving you the hormones or not giving you the hormones or whatever it may be. And this is not something uh, that's a one-stop shopping, so to speak. Absolutely positively agree with you. And it's a conversation that I bring up with all my patients, especially when they hit their 40s. I talk about sexual function, and I find that patients, one of their key symptoms as they approach menopause is that they're no longer interested in having sexual relations. And so I'll get a little bit further into it, and I'll find out, by the way, there's vaginal dryness, and it's uncomfortable. And the pleasure center of the brain says, you know, this isn't comfortable. Let's not ask for this. And so the hypothalamus, the pleasure center, turns down your libido, and you're no no longer interested in initiating sex. And that if you can replace moisture in the vagina, whether it's with estrogen or water-based lubricants, and sexual contact becomes pleasurable again, the hypothalamus, the pleasure center says, okay, we could ask for this, we could want this more. And so libido can come back. So libido is just the superficial aspect when it turns out that it's secondary to the discomfort that they were having. And for most women, how long do these symptoms last? At least a small percentage, maybe 10%, will have these symptoms beginning in their 40s and will go on for 10 years. Uh, And a small percentage, perhaps 10%, will turn 52 and never get one symptom. And the other 80%, some percentage of symptoms. I'd have to say fewer than 5 or 10% of my menopausal patients 
uh, are on hormone replacement therapy. The majority will muscle through with a paucity of discomfort and, and deal with local symptoms. And it's really the, um, the, the pleasant few that, that go through it with a, the water faucet turning off and not getting one symptom that are very pleasantly surprised because they hear horror stories from some of their friends. But this, the symptoms are all manageable and it involves a conversation. There's no need to be in pain. There's no need to suffer. There's no need to be embarrassed by hot flashes. There's a workaround and it just involves keeping an open discussion with your provider and addressing the issues that concern you. But is this typically something that's six months, two years, five years? Total variety. I mean, a handful will do that for any amount of time. And it literally ranges from zero symptoms to a lifetime of symptoms. If you had to pick a middle area, I would say between three and nine months. Everybody's absolutely different. And I can never promise somebody that don't worry, this will be over in three months, six months or nine months because I can't predict it. And once someone is, let's say, in the finishing menopause or it seems like their symptoms are decreasing. So let's say they're in their mid 50s or whatever it is. And, and the symptoms of menopause are no longer bothering them or they don't need any treatments anymore. What kind of things are you watching for as their gynecologist moving forward in their 50s and 60s and, and beyond? Well, again, we're primary care providers. At least 75% of my GYN patients don't have a regular medical doctor. Now, clearly, if I see that their blood pressure is elevated, if I see that they're spilling sugar or showing signs of diabetes, they're going to see a cardiologist, they're going to see an endocrinologist. But beginning at age 40, we recommend annual mammograms for our patients. Sometimes the first mammogram is accompanied with a breast ultrasound. This mammogram was really designed for women who are postmenopausal, where the mammography can see uh, signs of cancer much easier than in premenopausal women who have ducts and glands and lots of obstructive stuff in the breast. And so an initial mammogram and breast ultrasound at 40. Beginning at age 50, and some health organizations recommend 45, Colonoscopy, screening for colon cancer, another largely preventable cancer. 10-year intervals, if you have a completely normal colonoscopy. Bone density, as we discussed, and, and whole women care. Pap smears every three to five years. If you've had normal pap smears, we screen for human papillomavirus. And if those have remained negative, it's every three to five years. And beginning at age 70, and yes, we have patients in their 70s still coming to the gynecologist, you can actually stop doing pap smears, but you still see them for regular physical exams, a regular check of vitals and physical findings, colonoscopies and mammograms. And so that also differs from region to region. In some places, women only see their gynecologist on a regular basis. And in some places, they'll see their gynecologist as well as a primary care doctor, like a, someone in family medicine or internal medicine. And a lot of that just depends on the availability and also the relationship, the doctor, as well as the doctor's uh, willingness and ability to do those things. Some gynecologists are quite comfortable doing primary care and others are less comfortable because they don't do it as much. And I think that's also important for women to know when they're seeing their gynecologist, let's say every year, are they also getting the primary care that they need? And that's something they should ask. Am I getting everything I need from my gynecologist or should I also be seeing someone who's in primary care and vice versa, someone who sees, let's say an internal medicine doctor or family doctor every year, are they getting all of the gynecologic care that they need? Are they getting pap smears and recommendations for mammograms and exams and treatment for bleeding or whatever it is? And sometimes women won't know unless they ask. With every visit, with every physical exam, I feel for the thyroid. I do a breast check. We check for all the primary care 
symptoms or, or signs that they might demonstrate. Sometimes if you go to a doctor that just does a pap smear and doesn't do much of another physical, you absolutely positively need a primary care provider. I'm ecstatic when a patient has a primary care provider. Just like I don't think the average primary care provider is going to be most adept at doing a pap smear, I might not be the most adept at palpating a thyroid, at feeling a thyroid. And also doctors have a huge variety of difference in terms of routine screening labs and routine screening tests. There are several different organizations that recommend mammograms at this age, mammograms at that age, bone densities at this age, bone densities at that age, perhaps every so often, perhaps every other often. How do you manage an abnormal pap? And so there are four or five different organizations that make their own recommendations. So we as a practice have developed, just as in maternal fetal medicine and gynecology, our routines for recommending mammograms at 40, colonoscopies at 50, just like as you and your MFM colleagues talk about identical twins, non-identical twins, bleeding disorders, hypertensives, diabetics, and, and uh, all those types of things. Definitely. Some of the differences between doctors is related to their own let's say, beliefs or understandings about what's going on. And some of the differences are based on education. And some of the differences are based on, there are real differences out there. I mean, we could probably have a podcast that lasted three or four years if we talk just about mammograms and how much debate there is and when do you start, how frequently, and all the, the ups and the downs and the positives and the negatives. And it's, it's complicated stuff. And unfortunately, we just don't know all of the right answers for these things. What is the best? And it's probably... Earlier is better for some women and later is better for other, but to tease that out is very complicated. And so that's one of the reasons women will get different recommendations on these is that there actually are different recommendations out there by large groups of very smart people come to different conclusions. What are some of the most common questions you get or common reasons that people will come in to see you other than their annual scheduled visits just for maintenance? What are the problems that people uh, seem to have in this age group? One of the most common is a change in their menstrual flow. What would be concerning would be a woman virtually at any age, but especially in the 40s, who has exceptionally heavy bleeding. That would be saturating a sanitary pad in less than an hour for more than a day. Of greater concern would be a woman in her 40s who had more frequent as opposed to less frequent bleeding. So people that bleed irregularly and unpredictably. A majority of them will have a benign process in the lining of the uterus that can be treated. A small percentage of them may be manifesting an early endometrial cancer. So addressing that with a gynecologist is very important. There are imaging studies that can help. There is a sampling of the lining of the uterus that can be def uh, somewhat definitive with finding out what the cause of that is. And the management is often medical and, and very rarely surgical. Right. And for most women, irregular bleeding, uh, again, is is an annoyance. And as you said, for some of them, it could be dangerous. But one of the fortunate things about cancer and precancer of the endometrium, which is the inner lining of the uterus, is that if caught early, it's almost universally cured, either medically or with a simple operation or in a more advanced state, even a hysterectomy. But again, these are usually things that would happen after a woman is done having children, uh, so it shouldn't affect her ability to have a family. That's correct. And clearly, irregular bleeding should be addressed at an early age as possible. And I know we're moving into a different topic, but young women often start with irregular, unpredictable bleeding for a couple of years till their menstrual cycle straightens out. 
But if after two or three years from when they get their periods, they're still having irregular and unpredictable bleeding, they should see a gynecologist. A teenager does not need a physical exam. A teenager needs blood pressure and weight, um, a good conversation with a gynecologist, and potentially some blood work. Because there are several disorders that are hormonal variations that are very easy to treat and can prevent long-term complications. If you're bleeding irregularly and unpredictably, you can do some simple blood work and take a safe medication to give you regular periods. It should not impact on your future fertility, your future health, or your future risks of any cancers. Right. And so even though we shifted from menopause to teens, it's the same concept, the same principles, that these symptoms are common. They're usually not concerning and don't represent anything dangerous. But particularly in the menopausal population, there is a possibility that it's something that needs to be treated and is more concerning and so definitely needs to be addressed. And again, probably the most concerning of these is someone who no longer gets your periods, who suddenly starts having bleeding again. That's something that really needs to be uh, assessed and evaluated. Absolutely. And, and also non-invasively, because uh, even with menopause, the lining of the uterus remains, but it's ultra, ultra thin. And sometimes if that lining of the uterus breaks down, it exposes blood vessels on the surface of the lining of the uterus. That's called atrophy, where it's worn down that last little layer, and they're bleeding from just the surface area of the uterus. And a simple ultrasound with a little bit of salt water in the uterus can demonstrate an ultra-thin lining of the uterus. You don't need to sample that patient. You don't need to do a surgical procedure on that patient. You could just reassure her that with a one or two millimeter lining of the uterus, that it cannot possibly be a malignancy or anything that needs surgical management. Right, because cancer is basically overgrowth of the lining of the uterus. And here you're seeing the opposite, which is undergrowth. Both of them can cause bleeding, but the first one obviously is more concerning and needs to be treated. And the second one is not concerning medically. Again, it might be annoying. Uh, it can be treated, but it certainly isn't concerning in that sense. That's true. So if the lining of the uterus is thicker than two or three millimeters, you have not diagnosed a malignancy or a problem. You've diagnosed a problem and you need to sample the lining of the uterus, either in the office or in the operating room, and have a pathologist look under the microscope. And if this is just benign proliferative tissue, again, there's a litany of medical treatments. If there is evidence of a polyp or an overgrowth of the lining of the uterus, they would benefit from a simple outpatient surgical procedure called hysteroscopy, where you look in with a camera and remove the polyp. If there's precancerous cells, they can be treated medically with progestin therapy. If there are atypical cells that are precancerous that could develop into cancer if left untreated, they would benefit from a simple surgical procedure, a simple hysterectomy. Fantastic. So Mike, just to sum up, as we're finishing this podcast on menopause, if you had to give advice to women who are listening, who are, let's say, in their 40s or 50s and either anticipating that they may go through menopause soon or they're starting to or they're in the middle of it, what is the takeaway message you want them to have about menopause and about what they should be looking for and about what they might need to do? I really think that the question should be flipped. I should be speaking to physicians who I would implore to bring this up to their patients. Patients are often uncomfortable bringing this up as a topic. I would implore my patients to bring this up as a topic, to ask your doctor, what should I expect in the next few years? What should I be looking for? What shouldn't I be looking for? What should I be careful about? How long do I need to contracept for? What do I do with this symptom? Those are all very valid questions, but I really feel as a health care provider in 2020, 
that this needs to be addressed. This needs to be brought up from the physician to the patient. And by the way, did you know that the average age of menopause was 52? If your mom went through a little bit earlier, a little bit later, there might be a connection when you'll go through it. These are some of the symptoms. These are some of the common things. If you have this, we could do that. If you have that, we could do this. And open the dialogue as a physician. Uh, patients, open the dialogue. Ask your physician uh, uh, these same questions. This is Mike Silverstein for you. He's not waiting for people to ask him. He anticipates and he tries to help even when people aren't asking. Thank you so much for coming, Mike, uh, Dr. Silverstein. This has been really enlightening. Uh, thank you very much and have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.